For the past century, tenure protections have been one of the defining features of teaching in the United States. Defenders of the practice argue that it protects teachers from being fired for arbitrary, unfair reasons, while critics say that it makes it too difficult to dismiss teachers who are simply ineffective. So what happened when a major American state recently decided to eliminate tenure altogether? Did students benefit as a result? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Celeste Carruthers, associate professor in the Haslam School of Business at the University of Tennessee. Along with fellow economists David Figlio and Tim Sass, she's the author of Did Tenure Reform in Florida Affect Student Test Scores, which is available now on the Ednext blog at educationnext.org. Celeste, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. So it's great to have you, and this is a major new study that you're out with, still in working paper form as I understand it, and it takes a careful look at what happened when the state of Florida decided to eliminate tenure. There's a lot of talk among policymakers, even sort of uh, members of the general public about teacher tenure, but sometimes I get the feeling that not everyone understands exactly what it is. So I wonder if you could start out for us by just defining tenure. What exactly does it entail? Absolutely. So the conventional wisdom holds that teacher or that tenure um, kind of guarantees a job for life, and that's not quite true. Um, in, in the context of K-12 teachers um, who we were studying in this report, Tenure guarantees the right to due process after a probationary period. Um, during the probationary period, teachers can be fired without cause um, or with cause after a few months. Um, but after they can pass the tenure threshold, they have to go through a much more stringent due process um, to be terminated. So essentially it means that you can only be fired with cause. And I guess the, uh, the point that a lot of people would make it is that it becomes very difficult in practice to fire teachers with cause once they have tenure. And so to some degree, maybe it amounts to in practice something akin to a job for life, but at least technically that's not what it means. That's right. And one of the things I really like about the paper is that you delve in a bit to the origins of tenure. I think a lot of people would assume that tenure for teachers was a consequence of the unionization of the teaching workforce in the 1960s and 70s. But you note that actually it was first introduced in the state of New Jersey in 1908. What was tenure intended to accomplish? Um, early on, tenure was intended to limit political influence in the hiring and firing of teachers and to limit the extent to which political patronage was a factor in who was hired and who was fired. And later, during the 1960s, teacher tenure was and you know, viewed as um, protection for teachers who were engaged in the civil rights, um, uh, you know, protesting or advocating for school desegregation in the 1960s, or even going back to kind of, um, teacher views on World War One in the early 20th century. Yeah, so the original intention was really to protect teachers uh, from, I guess, corruption in some sense, uh, but really it serves a variety of potential purposes. As an economist, how do you think about, you know, prior to conducting this study, what the likely implications of tenure would be for teacher quality and performance? What are the mechanisms by which we would think that this institution would lead to better or worse outcomes for students? Um, well, it's 
of ambiguous. So a protection like this you can think of as we call a compensating differential. It's something that, you know, is not represented in your paycheck but that you value as a part of your job. And so that might be attractive to certain teachers. Um, but kind of the lack of oversight and the very limited threat of dismissal for poor performance might also be attractive to teachers who are not particularly effective at you know, advancing student achievement or are not interested in advancing student achievement in ways that um, some policymakers would like to see. So it might make it easier to attract teachers despite relatively low salaries because sort of you're paying with security, but you might worry about exactly who's going to be most selected uh, or most attracted to that type of arrangement. What about the incentives that teachers would have to, I don't know, exert their best effort you know, at any point in time. Is that another mechanism by which you could think of tenure mattering? Absolutely. That is another mechanism by which you could think it matters. Um, if you imagine tenure disappearing um, at a point in time, for an anyone, any given teacher that might change the amount of effort that they want to exert on the different metrics, the different performance metrics that are measured and evaluated by their supervisors, by the districts, and by the state. Um, so at a given point in time, if you take tenure away, that might enhance you know, my incentive um, to kind of work harder on moving the needle on student achievement and student absences and, and, and my observation metrics and other things that districts are tracking. And so that strikes me right there as a nice summary of the hypothesis that you found an opportunity to test by examining what happened in the state of Florida starting in 2011. So uh, tell us a bit about this law, the Student Success Act, that provided you and your colleagues with an opportunity. Sure. So the Student Success Act was really a game-changing um, movement to really just change the face of teacher tenure in Florida and also teacher pay in Florida. And so rather than moving teachers to um, an effectively permanently renewing cycle of contracts, um, a.k.a. tenure, um, teachers hired after the summer of 2011 um, would go through a probationary period and then be subject to annual contracts. And the renewal of these annual contracts would be determined um, at least in, in at least in half by the performance of their students on standardized tests. Um, so it, it moved a traditional tenure system into a very more metrics-based annual renewal contract system. And it also changed the pay structure from a traditional step lane pay scale that rewarded experience and advanced degrees to ones that uh, a pay scale that placed more emphasis on kind of hard to staff subjects and on these evaluations that uh, incorporated student achievement. So tenure's been very difficult to study empirically to test the theories that you laid out because virtually all states have had it in one form or another and there hasn't been much change over time. Here you have a major change that provides something of an opportunity, but the challenge is that it was a change that occurred statewide all at once and affected at least all newly hired teachers uh, in the same way. So how exactly did you and David and Tim go about trying to understand the effects of this uh, quite sweeping change? Yeah, that's a very good point to make. So this was not a randomized controlled trial that affected some teachers and not others or affected some schools and not others. It affected the entire state at one time, particularly anybody hired after July of 2011. And so what we did was we 
um, thought through the implications of the law and who would be um, evaluated and how stringently. And we kind of characterize schools as being more or less vulnerable or more or less exposed to the provisions of the SSA, um, in part based on metrics that existed prior to the SSA, like the typical share of teachers who were brand new. Um, I mean, schools that tend to have kind of a high rate of new rookie teachers after the SSA, these schools are going to be more vulnerable and more exposed to the new law since they're more apt to have teachers who are hired after that critical July 2011 time period. And so we kind of compared student achievement growth in schools that, for example, tended to have a high rate of rookie teachers versus those that had a low rate of new rookie teachers and to see if those schools that were more exposed saw steeper student achievement growth over time. So the basic idea is that everyone's treated to some extent, and so you're going to compare schools that were more treated to those that were less treated, and you're going to define those schools based on their characteristics prior to the law coming into effect to sort of uh, set up the best possible comparison. And when you make that comparison, what did you find? What are, what's the bottom line? So the bottom line is that, well, there are two parts. First, I'm, I like how you characterize the sort of dosage approach to um, the treatment effects that we were looking for. We were looking at schools that experienced a stronger dosage of the SSA um, relative to others. But those, those treatment differences were very small. Um, and so, in consequence, it might not be surprising that we ended up finding very small, potentially positive and statistically significant effects of um, these tenure reform provisions on student achievement. And so, those schools that were more vulnerable, we tended to see slightly steeper student achievement growth over time, um, especially among the lower initially lower performing students. Um, so, and that's the bottom line. We found um, suggestive, circumstantial, small, but positive and statistically significant effects. So the key question, it seems to me, is whether the right interpretation is that, uh, I guess, the differences in terms of exposure to the policy that you're using to study it were small, and so therefore the effects were small, but really the overall effect of the policy could be much larger, or whether this was really just a change that appeared more substantial on paper than it was in practice. Which of those two interpretations do you feel most comfortable with at this point? I feel more comfortable with the first in that we're looking at of a, a small gradient of treatment, and so we might not be surprised that we see small treatment effects. Um, we know on paper the law was fairly effective. It truly was a, um, a remarkable new way of evaluating and promoting teachers, and we know they have programs today such as the Best and Brightest Scholarship that are affecting uh, 160,000 teachers or so that are based rooted in that evaluation system that came out of the SSA. Um, maybe about half or more of teachers are now on these annual contracts, meaning that they were hired after July 2011 or they opted into the annual contract system. So in terms of the practical day-to-day -day life of teachers, it, the law definitely had an effect and it was um, a big one. But when we're looking at very short-term changes in student achievement, we're just not seeing a lot. We're not we can rule out large negative effects. We're not seeing you know, precise zero effects, um, but the estimated effects we are detecting are kind of small and positive. And if we go back to the theory that you said was 
to some degree motivating your interest in tenure, the idea that could have positive effects on who you're selecting into teaching, but also potentially negative effects because of uh, exactly who you're selecting into teaching, um, but then also could have effects on the effort of teachers at any point in time. Which of those mechanisms would you say that you're testing with this analysis? Is it all of them or is it a subset of them? We're going to be testing for the net effect of all of them. Um, I think it's a very interesting and very open question as to what happened to the teaching force after the SSA. Um, the intent of the law was to raise student achievement by improving the quality and the effectiveness of teachers, both um, internally among existing teachers and by recruiting of um, new high-quality teachers into the profession. And whether that happens remains to be seen. Um, we're looking at the net effect of all of these different new rules and regulations on student achievement. And so going back to this question of interpretation, which I think is the key one with this analysis, I suppose when you're trying to figure out whether the effects are small because of your research design or because the effects were small in practice because maybe the change wasn't as uh, big or maybe just wasn't as consequential. One of the things you would want to know is what's going on overall in terms of teacher effectiveness and student outcomes in Florida over the period when this major law was put into place. Um, do you have any information on sort of what happened to achievement in Florida writ large over this period? Well, the Florida students did well on the NAEP exam following the SSA, and I suspect that readers of or listeners of your podcast will know better than to um, have attribute changes in NAEP directly to the most recent policy that was passed. But nevertheless, that's um, supportive evidence that you know, something was happening in Florida over the several years prior um, that was uh, raising student achievement relative to the rest of the country. At a minimum, I think it would enable us to suggest that the Student Success Act, the elimination of tenure, didn't have immediate and substantial negative effects on the quality of instruction in Florida classrooms. I think you're exactly right that we need to be very cautious in trying to uh, attribute, uh, I don't know, um, attribute changes more specifically to the policy in that way. Yeah, that's right. I think so. Um, it's also important to note that the law itself changed quite a bit in the years following its passage. Um, the, the requirement that some student achievement make up at least half of a teacher's evaluation has been scaled down to a minority role. Um, districts were uh, initially required to use the state's value-added modeling system and then ultimately not required to use it. So it's, it's still kind of going through some changes and some evolution. Uh, the two years that we focus on were possibly the two most potent years of the law in terms of the code, um, but they were also initial implementation years. So it's, it's hard to know if the, the small effects that we're finding are from kind of a small, from the policy itself ramping up to a level that it never quite reached, um, or from kind of the treatment effect dosage that we can actually look at. And at the same time, um, teacher evaluations moved from about 99% satisfactory prior to the SSA to maybe 97% at expectations or above expectations after the SSA. So in terms of the outcome of evaluations, there wasn't a lot of 
uh, variation in the real threat to a teacher's annual contract. So I certainly understand that we don't have definitive evidence, but policymakers have to make a decision one way or another based on the evidence that we have. And so given where we are, you know, would you encourage policymakers to uh, make either this change or others with respect to teacher tenure? Um, or is this an area where we need less rather than more experimentation? Uh, no, I, w I wouldn't encourage less experimentation um, on the basis of these research. Um, on the contrary, I think that we could use abundant more research on teacher and student reactions after some of the changes in tenure policies in other states, Florida, Louisiana, and other places, and Tennessee, um, and to get a better understanding of how of student achievement and the quality of the teaching force reacts to some changes in the landscape of how teachers are hired, paid, and promoted, and terminated in rare cases. My guest today has been Celeste Carruthers, Associate Professor at the University of Tennessee. Along with David Figlio and Tim Sass, she's the author of Did Tenure Reform in Florida Affect Student Test Scores? A new post that's available now at educationnext.org. Celeste, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.